Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. KGRA Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cacciolillo, your host. And today we have Miranda, the ghost biker. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Gary. Um, so how did you get into uh, the paranormal? Well, I've been a paranormal investigator for a little over 10 years now. And I kind of cut my teeth sitting on my grandma's porch up in the Appalachian Mountains, listening to her tell stories of growing up in the mountains and about mountain haints and different stories from when she was younger. Was her house haunted or she just told stories about haunted places that were nearby? It wasn't. Um, you know, I never had one of those experiences growing up uh, with a haunted house or, or I never came into, you know, contact with anything from a young age. I just always had a, a interest in the folklore and um, his, history and stories about um, haunted locations. And, you know, I started watching um, some of the older um, paranormal entertainment shows, you know, Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures back uh, in the 90s when they came on. Um, but I actually started investigating. Um, I was approached by a guy I used to work with. He saw my background in photography. And so he approached me to look at some photos to try to possibly debunk some of the evidence that his team had found. And I ended up looking at a lot of photos. And in order to pay me back, he invited me to go on an investigation. And so um, I went with him and another gentleman from the team. And we investigated a local bar and at a marina and had a lot of activity that night. Um, everything from so, several Class A EVPs to actually being touched. And so they invited me on a couple more investigations. And... After, after that, invited me to be a member of the team. And so I did the marketing. I did their photo analysis as well as put their videos together. And then three years ago, um, you know, we were investigating, going somewhere at least every month, and we were doing residentials as well as commercial locations. And uh, three years ago, I started Ghost Biker Explorations. I found that I was out traveling a lot by myself uh, when I wasn't investigating with the team and doing, you know, a lot of research. I was traveling for work as well as just traveling on the weekends out on my motorcycle. And I thought, why not combine those two passions? And so um, that's how that's how Ghost Biker was born through the motorcycle riding, the photography and and really just posting a lot of information online about some of my travels, um, a lot of folks started asking, why don't I document that through video? And so um, I just started documenting my travels and it, and it took off like wildfire. Wow. Do you have somebody that travels with you to do the filming? Sometimes. Um, that's what's kind of unique about my show and what I do is most of the time I investigate alone. It's either myself and it's filmed vlog style or I have another guy that will travel with me. Um, he is actually not an investigator, which makes it really unique because um, 
he's he sort of creates a really cool identifiable character for the audience. Um, he was just following me and not really saying anything while he was filming, but the spirits were interacting with him. Um, some some of the unexplained activity was, um, you know, he would get touched or, you know, when you experience some of this stuff for the first time, it's kind of hard to be quiet, you know, and, and just sort of be, you know, the fly on the wall. Um, and so he really created a, a really um, identifiable character for, for my audience um, when, when he is with me because he essentially, you know, put, helps put the audience in, in the uh, episode with me because he's experiencing a lot of things that is, is um, unexplained and, and not familiar to, to him. Interesting. So your first paranormal experience was on an investigation? It was. Um, <clears throat> yeah, as far as, you know, I've, I hadn't really had anything, like I said, I never really had that aha moment or anything growing up. Um, my elementary school was said to be haunted. Um, there was uh, the area where my kindergarten class was, was a very, very old building. And back in 1928, there was actually, they, they used to show movies in there. And so um, in 1928, there was a shooting that occurred between a doctor and a deputy. The deputy ended up shooting the doctor. And uh, he ended up, after, after about a month, it was a pretty swift trial. And uh, he ended up being put to death in, in the electric chair. And so our librarian, was she, you know, she was a lot like my grandmother. She really instilled the importance of storytelling. And so there wasn't a, a student that went through those, those halls and graduated from that uh, elementary, middle, and junior high that didn't know the story and the possible paranormal activity. So, you know, we would always hear stories about, you know, the phantom laughter, the phantom gunshots, um, and different activity there, but as far as actually experience anything like being touched or really hearing, you know, those, those EVPs, I didn't experience anything like that until I actually started investigating. Have you gone back to the school since then to investigate it? They've actually torn that specific building oh. where I would, yeah, because it, you know, it was something that everyone in the community knew about, and like I said, you know, the, the stories just, you know, that was something that was a really rich history there, but they have torn it down. I wouldn't be surprised if the um, modern elementary school that's there might not have activity. I haven't heard, but that wouldn't surprise me being just on the land. Interesting. Um, so when you do investigations, like what type of equipment do you use? Do you use like a ghost box, um, thermal? I do. Um, I have a lot of, of equipment that I use. I have to, because I am on the motorcycle, I do have to keep my, my equipment light. Um, and I've learned kind of how to really kind of pack for the bike. But I always have my recorder with me as well as some type of video camera to document. And then um, I do, because I am typically investigating solo. I do have a couple stationary cameras that um, are battery powered that I can put up. And then, um, and, and that depends on if it's a very large location or if it's a smaller location. And then I've got a, um, 
a military drop bag that I carry my essentials in, which would be my thermal as well as I like to keep my spirit box. Uh, I love the EDI Plus because that one is a really good source for um, scientific data as far as temperature, pressure, um, vibration, EMF. It's all in one location. Right. So always keep that one with me because for me, it's important to really know the environmental factors and really keep track of that um, because I like to do things such as the flashlight method. And to me, you know, if a flashlight turns on and off, that's great. But if I have other data like my SLS camera showing a, a stick figure touching that flashlight or um, my EDI box showing maybe the pressure change or temperature change when that flashlight changes. If I can combine data together, then that helps, you know, sort of be, it makes it appear to be more um, unexplainable activity rather than just, you know, one piece of equipment going off. Um, so yeah, I've, I have your traditional equipment, but I will also, because I am traveling light, do um, trigger I trigger objects based on where I'm going. So, um, so yeah, I try to keep it simple. But you know, when you're filming a web series, you know, you do have to have some of the bells and whistles as far as um, you know the the um, rim pod, periscope, those sort of things. Th that sound alarms and stuff just so I guess just to kind of you know keep the the energy and everything on on a web series keep people's attention right. have you ever just like been riding and you know come across a place that feels kind of creepy or something and just stop and investigate it randomly I have because a lot of the time I'm off on the beaten I'm off of the um um the highway and off the beaten path, you know, I'll come across cemeteries sometimes or just areas that, you know, one in particular that I came across was an old church and um, it, it didn't give any signs of, of being haunted, but it was, it was an abandoned church. I pulled off, went over and checked the door and it was actually open and I went in and kind of looked around. I ended up finding out who the owner was and asked to go back because I'm not really big into <laughs> trespassing or anything like that. But what was interesting about this location when I looked inside and the door was unlocked, the it was almost like they had had church one Sunday and they left and they never came back. It had everything from hymnals sitting in the pews to um, the, a fan sitting on like one of those little um, uh, just... Um, not an electric fan, just a little uh, fan uh, on the piano. And so when I spoke to the lady who owns it, they hadn't had services there since 1994. And so I, f I found some pretty interesting places just, just riding. If, you know, if they're not haunted, they're at least, you know, they at least have an interesting history behind them. Yeah, I always had a thing for like abandoned places when I was a kid. Whenever I saw like an abandoned house or something, I had to go check it out. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and that's one of the things, you know, that, that I love to do. I'm always out taking photography. And, you know, again, that was kind of how 
how this started um, with Ghost Biker Explorations was through this photography. I was visiting locations like uh, Six Gun City in Southern Kentucky, um, the old Coke ovens in uh, Northeast Tennessee, um, the, the rat the rat hole system, which is a an abandoned train tunnel system, you know, I like oh, that to go sounds like fun. Oh my gosh, you know, it's it's amazing the stories behind these places. They're they're absolutely beautiful to look at, and then when you know that story behind it, I mean, it really just it, it's so rich in history, and it really piques a lot of folks' interests. And you know, I was I was sharing those images, and people were saying, well, you know this is a neat house. I've seen this all my life. What's the story behind it? And so, um, or it may not even be a house. It may be in a building. Um, you know, my first episode that I put out was on the bleeding mausoleum and it's just this single family mausoleum that in the middle of town in Cleveland, Tennessee. And, you know, it was beautiful to take photos of. And so when I started researching it and found the family's tragic history, and turned it into an episode, I had a lot of folks coming up to me and saying, you know, I've passed this building all my life and I never really knew the story behind it or really knew what it was or, you know, what its function was before it was abandoned in some cases, you know. So that's been the really cool thing that's come out of this is I've been able to learn a lot and then been able to pass that information along to other people that may or may not know, you know, what they're seeing on a daily basis. Interesting. I've been to Cleveland, Tennessee. Very nice. <laughs> it is a pretty place. It is. It is. And it's, it's, it's got a lot of history. You know, it's grown a whole lot um, since, since I had uh, been there the first time. Um, you know, it's, it's just everything from the, the Trail of Tears, you know, started in this area to all those different Civil War skirmishes um, to just, you know, other little small haunted areas that, uh, you know, like the Crag Miles Mausoleum, um, you know, that uh, the story of the uh, phantom monk on the tracks, you know, there's just, there's so much, you know, there's, there's large history that's known throughout, you know, the whole entire region. And there's some that's a little more targeted just to that specific area. But it's a very cool place. Um, so since you've started investigating, like from the very beginning and now what, you're like sort of like the seasoned investigator. Um, has your view on the paranormal changed during that 10 year period? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like I'm always learning and I love watching, you know, other investigators. Uh, I don't, you know, anymore, I don't really watch too much as far as TV goes, but following uh, different investigators that I've met or that I've come across in my travels. You know, in the very beginning, um, I've really learned, you know, through, you know, doing residentials and doing some of these different commercial locations. I've, I've really learned, you know, I, I like to know the history so that I can help maybe to um, figure out why we're experiencing some of the stuff that we are. And then just, you know, I mean, I've always gone in with a um, sense of skepticism, I guess, um, you know, but just learning these different techniques, being able to go in, if I am doing a residential and, and trying to help somebody, 
you know, looking at, at other possible causes, you know, I take their story as to what's going on, what they're experiencing and try to, you know, figure out, is this something that's explainable or, and, you know, that can be fixed by possibly, you know, checking things such as, you know, finding out what the wiring in the house is like and uh, finding out different things, you know, of, you know, if they're having trouble sleeping, it's like what electronics, you know, are, are there in your bedroom and that such, such thing. Um, you know, that would probably be the biggest thing that I've learned is, is learning how to, I guess, debunk some of the um, things that, you know, some people may think, you know, is paranormal, um, but may actually have an explanation for it. What is like the, um, what is your, when it comes to the paranormal, do you think, um, all paranormal phenomena or deceased humans, or do you have any, any, any of your theories of your own that are kind of out of the box? You know, I don't know if they would necessarily be out of the box. Um, you know, I've got several, several theories and for me, you know, I think in some situations, I think that we may be, you know, I've had things happen that makes me think that, you know, we are potentially talking to, you know, that person that was at that location that had either passed away or had some type of traumatic experience happen. Um, I don't know if that, you know, I kind of go back and forth, I guess, with my theories. Um, you know, sometimes I think it, it may be just a sort of energy that's left because of what happened, whether it be, you know, I mean, obviously residual, that is what that usually is, is, is uh, the energy that's, that's playing, you know, kind of in a loop. But when it comes to the intelligent haunting, I don't know if potentially the other side is closer than we think, you know, um, maybe sort of, you know, behind the veil that's maybe thinner at certain times or, or if it's actually a type of energy or potentially, you know, DNA that's left behind, you know, if at some of these prisons, you know, when there's murders and when different things happen, you know, there's, there's bloodshed and with bloodshed comes DNA, you know, and so I don't know if it's some type of DNA that's kind of left behind uh, or exactly what, but those tend to be sort of what I go back and forth with, with either we are communicating with someone that is, really closer than we think. And, and part of what makes me think that as well is the fact that every time I, I get EVPs and I go in and I'm really analyzing the audio data, I've found that there seems to be a sort of pop before it comes through. And, you know, especially if it's, you know, a, a really clear voice, I haven't noticed it as much, you know, when dealing with disembodied voices because, seems like when those happen, you know, and I actually hear it in real time, it, it happens so fast, it's kind of hard to tell. But uh, when I'm analyzing the actual audio evidence, it, it seems like there's, there's a pop and, and maybe that's the sound of the voice coming, coming through the veil or coming from sort of another realm. Or, you know, I mean, maybe it's just, like I said, just something that's kind of left over but, but those tend to be the theories that i go back and forth with what do you think of um like the idea of like demons and angels 
I definitely believe that there are demons and angels. Um, you know, as far as demonic activity, that that's not something that um, it's not my specialty and it's not something that I'm a- actively seeking out when I go to these locations, but I have visited several very dark locations and actually in my series, um, season one and two actually had a location that did have um, a dark entity or a demon in it. And I had to end up, you know, this, this ended up being a year long case for me, which was, was really interesting. I was actually there to investigate a haunted relic. And once I got in and was investigating this haunted relic, I was getting a lot of activity from the house itself. And I wasn't sure if the house had activity or if this activity was coming from this haunted relic. And so by talking to the homeowner, it was an abandoned home that was being used um, for storage. And the homeowner was gracious enough to let me come in and and do that. Started um, talking to her and asking, you know, some of the history of the house and if she had had any activity before she had acquired this item. Turns out that, that uh, and, and I hope you guys will go back and watch the episodes because we were very fortunate to be able to document all of this. And, and where can we find this episode? Um, this is in my season one and season two. Uh, it, it begins with episode two, and um, we cover it full scale in episode three of season one. And then it actually ended up being episodes four and five of season two. Um, We went through the entire year um, documenting the entire case and the different trips. We even had a couple lives that that I filmed there and and the the activity was off the chart. You know, from my experience, a lot of the time when the cameras come on, the activity slows down. But with this house, it's almost like it it really thrived on the act on the um, attention and if you didn't pay attention to it it would do things you know slam there was there was a lot of poltergeist type activity things being thrown doors being shut um, people being touched I ended up the the homeowner decided that she was going to remodel the house and start renting it out And so I had actually come into contact with a demonologist from South Georgia. And, you know, he has a very, um, he has had a very extensive training and he just happened to be, we were doing an event and he happened to be uh, at a booth beside of mine and we were talking. And so when the homeowner reached out to me and said that she was going to start renting the house out and she wanted to have the activity taken care of, uh, she asked if I could do it, and that's that's not something that um, I do. And so I reached out to this demonologist and asked if he would review my case and all of my notes and see if this was something that he would be interested in in taking on. And fortunate enough for us, he he let us actually film the entire process. And so that was something that was totally different and totally new to me. Um, episode five of season two we actually cover the uh, infestation as well as the home liberation of the removal of the spirits that were in this this house and uh, there you know in the earlier episodes we had determined that there were five entities in there the demonologist came in he was actually able to confirm that there were at least those five and we had to 
go through the we had to go through the rituals I think about three times and it was a 10 hour um, home liberation or, or exorcism if you will and uh, we had to wait for you know a sign of departure from all of the different uh, entities and, and it was it was something that was pretty amazing to be able to witness and then to actually be able to chronicle that and show um, and then it, I interviewed him after the fact as well and uh, it was a it was a pretty interesting experience so I'm definitely a believer in angels and demons um, you know you you go looking for the paranormal you never know what you're gonna find and there is always that possibility of communicating with something darker but as far as myself my intentions are never to go in just seeking that out and mm-hmm. so um, you know I will communicate if we end up you know if that's something that we end up getting I know Revenant Acres was a house that I did and uh, it does have a dark entity in it and you know it's just something I don't really like to, to mess with because they can get pretty nasty sounds definitely interesting though to be around all that activity who's the uh, demonologist that you had uh, the demonologist was Leon Wilkes, and um, I'm not sure if you if you've heard of him, but if you've seen the um, the Conjuring series, I know I know most people have heard of uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, Ed Warren uh, had a couple uh, people that he trained, and Dave Considine was one of those. And Dave Considine trained uh, Leon Wilkes. He was um, one of two people that uh, David trained. And, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. I listened to him. Uh, we did a podcast together, and then I listened to him speak, and I was, I was amazed. I've, I've always, you know, I'm a Christian, and I've always, um, I was raised in church and uh, just always been in church. But as far as an exorcism, that's no, nothing that I had ever experienced. You know, Hollywood shows it one way, and you, you think of people levitating and head spinning and all of that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So we were kind of nervous about what we were going into and he he warned you know we had he he reviewed my my episodes and then he reviewed my notes and all of my footage that I had and we had extensive discussions about how it was going to be handled he brought up a colleague of his from uh, central Florida who is um, just just a phenomenal person and also a um, she's you know, she's got some spiritual gifts and it was, it was amazing to work with them because they were telling us, here are some of the things you could potentially expect, but you know, it's really expect the unexpected because anything can happen, you know, make sure you're prayed up. And, you know, so the, the day before we actually were supposed to do this um, on one specific weekend and they started having different things happen in their homes while we were working on this this case together, and so um, the the lady who was uh, the demon, my demonologist's um, colleague was had to cancel last minute, and so he he refuses to do a case alone, which I, after going through it, I, t- I totally understand, and so they rescheduled it for the very next weekend. And so there was all this extra buildup for the next week, um, just really not knowing what to expect. And, and it was a very exhausting 
process. But what was amazing about the whole thing is with the sign of departures that we were getting, you know, sometimes it was something as loud as this really loud bang. And other times it was something that was really subtle. But one specific entity that we were dealing with was exceptionally dark. And he he didn't want to leave. I mean, regardless of, of what we did, he did not want to leave. And when when Leon went in and he closed, um, there were two portals that he closed up. And you could just feel at the at the final time when we got that final sign of departure, you could just feel this heaviness lift. I mean, the house was even lighter and brighter. And what's really cool is I've kept in contact with the family that's uh, been renting this home out. And they, they've had no activity. Now, they were aware before they moved in. Um, the homeowner made them aware of what was going on. And, you know, they won't talk about it. They won't have anything to you know do with anything while they're inside the home and they've not had any experiences but that house before it was really it was it was really a, a paranormal investigator's gold mine because you could walk into that house and there wasn't a time that you could walk in there that you wouldn't get some type of activity whether it be voices I mean it would say your name um it would it would make the floor shake. I mean, it was it was a very crazy place, and it had no power. Um, it was it hadn't been lived in for twelve years before we went in there. It was just being used as storage, and it was being used as a rental property before that. And there had been a lady that had passed away. Um, she was an elderly lady. Um, we we got some residual activity from her, but the last person that lived in there, it was sort of a hoarding situation. And so a lot of the time that, that type of activity can, you know, breed more negative activity. And so, um, yes, it was like a, a hoarding drug type activity, and then no one had lived in it since. So it was really interesting to go from you could just see and feel it when you arrived to an actually light and, and almost charming type of environment. Um, did the demon actually, like, did it give you its name or anything like that? Did you, was it a recognizable entity? I had never received its name, no. Um, it, at one time, so we believed that there were five entities in there. One of them um, I believe to be dem demonic. The demonologist was able to confirm that with one in particular. There were there were two that were, you know, kind of um, negative and nasty. The other three really seemed to be just residual spirits. I believe one was a residual spirit from, or actually intelligent, excuse me, intelligent experience, experience, intelligent entity from the um, the haunted relic that I was there investigating. I believe he was connected to that. Um, and then the other two, I feel um, they weren't really negative. They were just um, spirits that I think were being oppressed by the two dark negative entities that were in there. Where did it, do, you, do you have any 
when you researched the history of this location, did you discover anything to explain the origin? Um, from what we had determined, so um, like I said, there there were a couple in there that were just sort of, you know, light. Uh, the it, it's an interesting story because it ties in with uh, episode two of season one. Um, the haunted relic that I was investigating was a haunted tub, and this is actually a a classic. Um, uh, local legend from this area um, not to get into the whole story of that one but there was uh, a train wreck that had um, had a monk on the train and um, the monk had perished in this train wreck and the local legend goes that the doctor took the monk's body and as he was you know treating the patients he took this monk's body and he actually dissolved the flesh from the skeleton and uh, used the skeleton in his doctor's office and this specific tub was purchased from an estate sale that belonged to this doctor and so it said that that was the alleged tub where this had this had happened it was an old clawfoot tub and so the tub was stored in this home and so I was actually there. I had been investigating the uh, train train wreck site, and had the honor of going and, and investigating this tub. And so um, when I spoke with the homeowner, when she lived in the home with her two young daughters at the time, her daughters are now grown. But when uh, they lived in the home, they had apparently. Uh, you know, different people have different beliefs on on this, but they had apparently been doing some uh, dark magic and per participating with a Ouija board. And so um, we thought that that was one of the theories that we had was where some of the, the more dark uh, spirits came from, probably from that particular activity. When it comes to demons, do you think they're like, they're evil spirits that come from hell, or do you think maybe they're just ancient spirits that have been roaming the earth since before humans? I definitely don't believe that they're human. Um, I think that, you know, depending on the type of demon, um, I do believe that there are some that come from hell. And then I also believe that some of them may potentially be ones that, you know, have been around since before humans were were created um you know for me the study of demonology and the study of demons have always been something that's been very fascinating and you know i'm i'm one that's not very quick to label something demonic or negative and my reasoning for that is a lot of the spirits that i've encountered have been ones that, you know, they may appear to be a little more negative, but a lot of the times they're really more aggressive as far as like wanting your attention and wanting to tell their story. But the true demons that we come into contact with, um, I, I believe that those definitely uh, are inhuman and that uh, some of them, I think, do come, come straight from hell. Do you think they come here at will, or do you think it's because they were conjured? I, personally, I believe that um, I believe they can come both ways. Um, you know, I think that sometimes by, you know, sometimes people doing things they shouldn't be doing and that they don't 
fully understand. I think that they can conjure, you know, that's why I, I don't play with Ouija boards or um, participate with uh, scrying or anything like that. Because sometimes I think people mess with items that maybe they don't fully understand. And um, there runs that risk of potentially conjuring something up. Uh, other times, you know, and it's, it, it's really an interesting thing that's really hard for me to explain. But, you know, I had somebody um, ask me when, when those spirits, uh, when the evil spirits were removed from, from this home, that home is called the Sunset Hill House. And when they're removed from the home, where did they go? Um, you know, I don't know where they go, but I know that they're, they're just kind of out and about, you know, and, and I think that when the demonic spirits are removed from a location like that, that um, you have to be very careful, you know, the, the family that owns the home, as well as the ones who are living in that house, you know, we instructed them, as well as my demonologist instructed them that, you know, be careful with what you do, because once something like that, once you've encountered something like that, or something's been removed from the home, it becomes easier to kind of come back in, whether it comes back into your life or comes back into your home. So, I mean, that that long-winded answer, you know, I say that to say, um, I feel like they are kind of out and about, and I think that they take advantage of maybe people who are, are weak um, or maybe going through some, some negative stuff in their lives. I think that they could become more susceptible, you know, in some of these negative households. I think they could become more susceptible to bringing in something negative like that because it seems that negative feeds on the negative from my experience. Um, when you're encountering something like that, um, do you ever have any concerns of it possessing you or, or somehow linking itself to you and following you wherever you go? Uh, absolutely, I do. Um, you know, for me, the prayer of protection and my faith is something that's really important to me. And I believe that, you know, I'm, I mean, I think that we can all, you know, potentially fall victim to something of that nature. But, um, you know, one, that's one of the reasons why I don't actively go seeking that sort of uh, activity out. And, and why I do have, I have a couple different demonologists that I've met over the years. Um, Brother Leon is, you know, one that I have, um, you know, that I've actually worked with, but I've had a couple others that I've come in contact with that I'll consult with. And for me, while, you know, it can, you can get a lot of activity from it. Um, it's something that if I encounter something like that, and if it's a residential case, um, I'll gladly pass on to someone that has more knowledge and uh, has more training in that sort of thing. Um, because I do feel that if you're not careful, you know, that, that the Sunset Hill House, um, with that being a year-long case, I mean, it was almost every opportunity I got, I would go into that house and run experiments and uh, set cameras up and drop recorders. And I felt as though the house itself could have potentially been um, kind of latching on to me 
because it did become an obsession to try to find out, you know, what's going on, what this is. And I had a lot of people who watched my show that were asking, you know, when we ended season one, they were asking, okay, well, what happened with that home? Um, there was so much activity. Are you following up? Did you get rid of what's in the house? That sort of thing. And so people were asking from the outside and they didn't know that I was actually on the inside working. And so it kind of felt like it had, you know, a hold of me a little bit. I mean, I'm honestly glad that case is done because it was always on my mind and it was a puzzle that I was always trying to figure out. So, you know, I do feel like that if you're not careful, things definitely can follow you home and things definitely, especially negative ones, can take a hold of your life. Um, I just try to, you know, safeguard against that as best as I can and be self-aware to try to not let that, you know, happen and try to, you know, because if I watch evidence, I can go back and watch evidence from where I had stationary cameras up in the house and I can't really explain the feeling I get, but it's an overwhelming feeling of just doom and gloom and just just depression almost. You know, when I'm I'm when I would watch that stuff from from the house, and I mean it, it got to the point where the spirits that were in there were so familiar with me that. It was, it was not uncommon to capture them saying my name. Um, and one time in particular, one of them threatened me and said I was going to die. Um, you know, we were just very fortunate to be able to capture all of this on camera. And so, um, so yeah, I think you have to be very careful when dealing with that. And, and again, that's why I won't hesitate to pass that along to somebody that uh, I feel is more qualified. I just lean on my faith when, when uh, I'm, I'm dealing with that sort of thing. Um, what do you think drove you to become so obsessive over that particular situation? Do you think maybe there was some, some force outside of you giving you a purpose to try to expel this particular demon? You know, I think that's possible. Um, you know, it for me, I didn't really realize at first just how overwhelming, you know, the um, the pool was to to go and you know find answers um, for this house. You know, because originally, you know, when I was experiencing all the activity when I was investigating the tub. and then when I called the homeowner and then did a small scale investigation, you know, that the activity was just, it's like, okay, well, this is really cool because we're getting, you know, answers to our questions and we're getting a lot of interaction. And so I called a friend and who's another uh, seasoned investigator. And I was like, Hey, you know, why don't you come and, and help me with this home? Because, you know, I'm getting a lot of really crazy activity here. I, I just want to kind of get your techniques and your expertise involved and also you know see if if we experience some of the same things and see if you maybe have an explanation and so when, when we it was myself and another lady when we did this house um, it was like you know more activity off the charts and so um, 
you know, the, like I said, basically the homeowner, anytime I wanted to go would let me go. And it really just became, well, let me see, you know, how this reacts if I put static cameras in and take a voice recorder and record questions. You know, we even got to the point where the homeowner, you know, she's an elderly lady and she hadn't, other than just having someone come over and mow the yard, she hadn't really been in there herself in about 10 years. And so um, her husband had passed away and we believed that one of the entities that we were experiencing was, um, you know, he had had a heart attack in the bathroom and we think that maybe the dark entity was sort of masquerading as her husband. And so um, the minute that I played her voice, I had her ask some questions, recorded her voice on the recorder, and then left it in there. The minute I did that, the floor started vibrating. And all I had four cameras up, and I had different items in the rooms. I had REM pod, flashlights, EDI box, all of the different pieces of equipment started going off. And I mean, it was just like a light show that you could see through the different rooms. You could see the lights lighting up. And, um, you know, I feel sort of like um, whatever it was, was, was masquerading as her husband. And that when I came back to pick the equipment up, was actually kind of upset because, you know, it was wanting to speak with her, but it was just the recording, you know. And so the activity changed after that because uh, it sort of acted like, okay, what, you know, what are you going to do next? What are you, what are you going to bring here for me to do and participate with next? So I feel like, I don't know, I think part of it was just my natural um, interest as a parent and curiosity as a paranormal investigator. But then I also feel like, I feel like there was something that was drawing me in. Um, you know, I was, I was actually gonna, gonna sleep there one night. Uh, part of what I do if I go to a commercial location, if I'm, if I'm traveling a long ways and have, you know, a eight, 10, 12 hour investigation, um, I'll lay down for maybe two hours and I'll put the recorder on me as well as the um, uh, video and sleep for a little bit. You know, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm a pretty strong individual and I feel like though for me that that puts me in an even more vulnerable state. And so one of the experiments that I was actually going to do at that house was I was going to ride over and sleep in there and put the cameras and see if, you know, really just seeing, okay, so I know we have activity when nobody's there and we have cameras up. I know that we have activity when we're there and we're doing lives. And then I know we have activity when we're there just filming. So what type of activity is going to be there when I lay down into a vulnerable state with just the cameras on? How is it going to react when someone does move in, you know? But I'm actually really thankful because things had ramped up so much. Um, I didn't feel that it was safe for myself or the homeowner to, to actually do that. And I'm, I'm really glad 
that I didn't because I really don't know what would have occurred. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you that question if you had considered actually sleeping in a location like that because that could probably leave you vulnerable for possession. Yes, I, I feel like it could, um, <clears throat> you know, because I've, I've slept in a lot of different places. Um, you know, uh, the other dark place that I stayed at was Revenant Acres and, you know, actually ended up getting some bruises from um, when I was sleeping there. And, you know, I slept in uh, Brushy Mountain State State Prison. I slept in, in the hole there, which is their solitary confinement. And, and I was not harmed or anything physically, um, but I got some of the best Class A EVPs that I've ever captured on anything. And, and that's actually one of my episodes as well. Um, but I actually really like sleeping in these places because, because I am there for so long. It's just sort of a different technique for me and it, it's almost sort of like a freebie in a way so you know you're spending all your time and effort doing these experiments and then you know just to kind of if you're gonna have to sleep anyways why not stay at that location and see if the activity is any different when you're you know when you're um, in more of that quiet vulnerable state um, you know it does life go on in a residual sort of way, you know, or are the entities, you know, if they're intelligent, are they watching and trying to interact or are they, you know, confused by what you're doing? So I really like to do that because I've gotten so many different kinds of reactions and uh, different pieces of evidence by doing that. It's, it's, I, I really enjoy using that technique. <laughs> More fun than staying at uh, Motel 6, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever had the opposite where an entity, a friendly entity, like you like say like you connect with the entity, like where you feel empathy for it or love for an entity that you come in contact with, and you almost like want to just like take it home with you? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that I've wanted to take any home with me, but... Um, I have come into contact with some that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I have come into contact with some that, you know, you, you start getting pieces of their story and, you know, sometimes they're more, you know, one in particular, and it's going to actually be a part of my new season that's coming up, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but it was at this, this hotel um, it, it is a functioning hotel, but they have seasons where they close um, for, you know, three or four months out of the year. And all of the activity that we got there, there was some intelligent, there was a lot of residual, and a lot of that activity, you know, this, this hotel was one that was really popular back in the days when people traveled by train. And so this was a stop in the mountains of uh, Balsam, North Carolina. It was a stop where people would often go and vacation at. And they were up in the nice, beautiful, cool mountain air. And it was um, um, a luxury hotel of its time. And it seemed like all of the activity, even though there was one homicide that occurred in that hotel, it seemed like all of the activity was just very positive. And, you know, 
like somewhere you would want to be when you go on vacation. So um, I'm really looking forward. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm really looking forward to sharing that inf sharing that episode because everything was light and it was just real responsive and real positive. Have you ever had anything happen to you on an investigation that was like um, so intense? You were like, "Wow, like there's, there's there's no way this could be really happening." Yes, on several occasions, and <clears throat> in particular, the one there at uh, Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Um, it was really interesting. You know, when I slept there in the hole, I didn't know that that was happening. And it was part of a two-night investigation where the first night I investigated by myself, slept in there. And then the second night, they had invited, it was over Easter weekend one year, and they had invited several teams to come in and investigate as a group. And so there was none of us in the auditor, excuse me, in the cafeteria. And we were sitting there and we were doing... Um, we played some Native American chants, and as we were sitting there, we each had these recorders. Now, we weren't documenting this because one of the teams had just come off alive. The other had been filming, and they had quit filming, and I believe had we actually been filming, we might not have actually experienced this, but just before, as soon as we cut the, um, the audio for the Native American experiment off, we captured this voice that says, watch this. And it was a real creepy whisper. It says, watch this. And then all nine of us saw, all we had on was a, a flashlight and it had been turning the flashlight on and off and the flashlight was on. And I'm trying to think, see if I can explain this correctly. But um, when some we start seeing this little like cyclone in the floor um, spinning and then in the shadows in the beam of the flashlight you see this it was like a shadow figure that cast its own shadow um, you see a head and shoulders reflection of a shadow stroll across the floor and all nine of us saw it and so on the audio you hear, watch this, but then you hear all of us screaming and yelling, you know, because we're seeing this. And it was one of those moments I, I kind of, you know, are my eyes deceiving me? You know, am I really seeing this? Um, I have never seen anything like that before because you actually saw the shadow and then you saw the shadow of the shadow, if that makes sense, in the light mm -hmm. beam on the floor. And um, I've only ever heard it described that way by one other person when I was up at the Lizzie Borden house last year. Um, she had seen a shadow figure and she was talking about the little cyclone that she saw. And that's the only other person that I've actually heard described that way. And I saw that before I saw the actual shadow figure and she was the same way. So um, that's probably... That entire weekend, sleeping there in the hole, capturing those EVPs, and then seeing that shadow figure are probably um, the most unforgettable experiences that I've ever had on, on an investigation. 
So as a paranormal investigator, and you see these type of things happening, um, one of the things that it has to make you question the nature of reality that we're experiencing. Um, what theory um, do you go by? Like, do you go by like a like a parallel universe theory or a holographic theory? You know, I don't really have <clears throat> I don't really have a theory that I go by. Um, as far as, you know, set in stone with that sort of thing, but it does make you, make you really think because, you know, my dad, um, he was a well-respected, uh, physicist and chemist or physicist and chemistry, um, teacher. And so he, uh, you know, he was one of those people growing up that when different, you know, when my grandma would tell me stories, when I would read you know, books about hauntings from the library and such. He was one, you know, I would find myself getting scared and he would always be like, you know, it's just your imagination. You don't need to worry about it. And as I got older and started investigating and, and playing these things, you know, I would often send, you know, my audio evidence as well as some of the different things that I captured to him because he was, you know, so well respected in the scientific community as well as, you know, just very, very logical and very smart about that. You know, he was a Christian as well. And so he had this balance of, you know, his faith and, and science that um, made for, you know, interesting conversation. And so to be able to play these voices, you know, a lot of the stuff when it comes to photography, I can explain because of my photography background, but, you know, the voices, the uh, EVPs and the disembodied voices are ones that are the most compelling to me. And so we would kind of go back and forth, you know, I, I don't really know whether it would be an alter, an alternate universe or alternate reality. But, you know, I really like the holographic theory. But um, as far as one that, you know, I find that because I am still learning so much and because I feel like, you know, I'll, something will happen, you know, I'll, I'll think, that, okay, well, this could really be what we're dealing with. Uh, and then something else will happen and it's like, okay, well, maybe I need to look in this direction. So I don't really have a one set theory, I guess, that I subscribe to when it comes to that. But I know it's definitely messed with my reality as far as things we experience. Right. You know, it strengthens you, you, my faith. You know, you know there's more than three dimensions. Right. <laughs> and, and it has for me, it's really strengthened my faith in an afterlife. And, um, you know, just the, that we're not alone in what we're experiencing. You know, I often say that people, you know, people would experience more if they just paid attention. You know, people, they just don't really listen and, and pay attention as deeply. And if you do, um, and I think that's the cool thing about a lot of investigators and people that get into this, a lot of the time they start to see that, you know, there is more going on. We would hear more if we just paid attention. And we would see that there's actually a lot of things going on around us that um, you may just not notice unless you stop and actually start to really kind of pay attention and, and uh, dig into this. 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, I, I know I used to do some paranormal investigation as well. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever use psychics and, uh, um, you know, the, to, to try to communicate? I have not, um, as far as, you know, um, an actual psychic medium. I have, you know, when, when I was with the team and then when I started investigating alone, uh, I have not. Um, although I do something, <clears throat> I haven't highlighted it in any episodes, but uh, I do talk about this at different events that I speak at. I don't know if you've ever heard of automatic writing, but um, yes, I, have. Okay. I do something that I call subconscious sketching. And um, I, in my day job, I'm an artist. And uh, so I thought, you know, why don't, you know, my, my investigation style is kind of old school. I spend a lot of time, you know, just sitting, listening, um, being, being quiet in some of these locations. And so sometimes when I'm sitting there, um, you know, I'll start to see things uh, like just different features, like maybe kind eyes, high cheekbones, um, that sort of thing. It's never a full person. Um, but I thought, why don't I try doing something kind of like automatic writing and try doing this with my drawing? And so um, I, I did that on a couple different occasions. I've done that on six different occasions. And part of the reason that I've not highlighted this in any of my episodes is that, you know, I feel like it's something that has been sort of special for me. Um, you know, what I'll do is I'll ask the different questions. I'll, I'll set up different, different tools like spirit box, um, EDI, uh, K2 meter and flashlights. I'll set those up. I'll explain that what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'll just, have a regular conversation with anyone that's in the room uh, or if there is anyone there and say, okay, you know, I'm going to try to draw. Can you give me somebody that's identifiable that maybe um, I can, after I'm done, I can, you know, match this person up. And so when I start seeing things, I'll call out what I'm seeing. And if the flashlight lights up or the K2 or if any of the meters light up, then I take that as validation and that's what I would draw. And so, like I said, I've done this on six different occasions and three of the six occasions have actually been able to match up with different people. The interesting side of that is the first person that I did, I actually was able to match up with a person that was alive. And um, it was part of a two-night investigation. I, I did it at Octagon Hall in Franklin, Kentucky. And I drew in the slave kitchen. And I ended up drawing a man. Um, he was wearing a, he had a beard and was wearing a floppy hat. The very next day when I came back to do the second part of the investigation, I met the man that I drew. And what's really crazy about that is the fact that he is actually a paranormal investigator who his home base is Octagon Hall and we've since become really close friends and what's really neat about it is I believe that he's there you know I'd never met him before he was there he's typically there on a daily basis and he uh, he's part of a team 
but he's the primary one that stays there. And I think he's developed a, a relationship. These spirits know him because he is there so often. And so um, we've actually spoke at several different uh, paranormal events. And it's been really cool to actually show that and then uh, show him. And then the other one was, was a child that I had drawn that was at a church. And so for me, um, I feel like I, I don't I don't claim to be a medium or, or anything of that nature. I do feel like it is a uh, spiritual gift. And, you know, I don't highlight that on an episode just be, for that reason that I feel like it's sort of something that I'm experiencing uh, with that location at that moment. Um, the closest I've ever come to using a medium uh, in, in a location was the lady who was the colleague of my demonologist. Um, she had some, some different uh, spiritual gifts where she could see things. I don't think she classifies as a medium, I don't believe, but um, there were some things that she was able to see and say that, that were very helpful that uh, really amazed me, but that's been my, my only experience with that on an investigation. Um, when you mentioned like you drew a picture of a guy, you know, who is still alive, do um, you ever think that maybe some of the entities that, that are encountered in paranormal investigations are um, not necessarily people that are dead, but people that are maybe astral projecting while they're asleep? That's a very interesting theory. Um, I have heard that uh, mentioned before, <clears throat> and I, I do feel like that anything is possible um, because I do believe in astral projection. And um, I think that that is actually a possibility. And, and that's a good theory that I hadn't actually thought about in comparison with the drawing because, um, you know, for me, it really kind of freaked me out when I was able to match those individuals up and was really trying to determine, okay, what is this and how can I use that? Um, and it really kind of puzzled me whenever I was able to draw the, you know, the guy that's alive. Um, I think that it, you know, could this person have some sort of attachment or, um, you know, could there be, uh, maybe there's somebody there that's, that has a message for them or whatever. And, and then they are, you know, astral projecting, you know, to, the, to that location as well. You know, I don't know. I mean, but that is actually a very interesting theory that I hadn't really uh, considered. I've heard it, just hadn't considered it, but I think it's very possible. Hmm. Um. How about telekinesis? Do you think sometimes because an investigator is looking for phenomena that they're actually causing it themselves unconsciously? I think so. I mean, I think that, and that's something that, <clears throat> that um, by doing paranormal investigating that, that, uh, you know, you asked the question earlier about things I've learned from it. I think that that is something I have learned more about and feel that we have to kind of be aware of because I think when you go into some of these different locations, I think that people can create their own haunting 
And to me, that's sort of what that, that brings to mind to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, that maybe some of this is, is happening um, because, because of that person. And I think that's something that we have to be aware of. And I think that that's a very good, po I mean, a very real possibility. Yeah, it seems like people find phenomena when they're looking for it. It does. And, you know, you, you often hear, you know, because there's the, you know, for me, I investigate really three different types of locations. I investigate residentials and I treat those completely different than I treat a commercial location. And then there's the commercial ones that, you know, I go for, for myself. And then there are the ones that I like to highlight on my episodes, which aren't commercial. They're just rumored to be haunted. Um, and, you know, and you see this a lot, I think, in commercial locations, especially ones that have been highlighted on paranormal entertainment shows. You know, people are, you know, these locations become revolving doors of investigators. And the stories um, from things I've found in my research, they're not always the way they're portrayed. You know, sometimes on TV, they're, they're sensationalized. And other times, you know, there um, somebody experiences something and it just kind of gets a whole life of its own and grows. And what's crazy about it is I have been to several different locations that have the well-known story of a specific entity being at those locations. And then you go and sure enough, you start getting activity based on, you know, this particular individual or this particular entity that's been said to be there. And then through your research, you find out that th this didn't even occur in this location. So the question then becomes, have you created your own haunting? You know, are you kind of putting a name to what you're, what you're capturing that's not exactly, you know, you're thinking it's something that it's not or is this entity that's inside the location sort of being I don't want to say trained but you know if you go into a place and there's an entity in there that will act and react with you but people are calling it by the name of someone who's never even been in there or labeling a behavior on something that didn't actually even occur in there does this entity start to take that on, you know? Um, you or it know, could that, just be that so many people believe in it that and so much energy is being focused that it actually comes into manifestation. Exactly. And I think that that is something, especially with some of these commercial locations that we have to really, as investigators, be aware of because it, I think it, it's a very real thing that can happen. Yes, because there's so much about our own consciousness that we don't even know and what it can do and how it affects what we perceive and what other people perceive. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, I think that's something that's very, um, that can be a potential problem. And I think a lot of re or, uh, excuse me, residential hauntings um, are like that, that a lot of the time, people have in a sense created their own haunting. Definitely. I agree with you. 
Have you ever, like, on your, like, you know how I, I mentioned, like, you know, like, you're driving and you just find a place and you stop. Um, have you ever found, like, a place, like, in nature? Like, there's not a house, there's just nothing there. And you just, like, you just want to crash there because you, you feel like there might be something there, like, in the woods or whatever? Yeah, uh, there have been several <clears throat> places like that that um, I've come across and, one in, you know, I see that a lot around here, and there was one place in particular I was riding, and I just really felt drawn to to this this location. Um, there was there was nothing there. Um, it was it was woods essentially, and <clears throat> so you know one one time in particular, um, I I got off the bike and ended up hiking back there. And so I took note of the location of where I was at and went back um, to the local archives and started researching in the area and come to find out um, <clears throat> it was one of the main routes that was along the Trail of Tears. And I don't know, you know, if, if that's necessarily related to that, but um you know, it was really interesting to me, and, and I had no idea at the time that that is what had occurred in that specific area. Um, you know, so that's something that's definitely happened to me on, on occasion before. Um, do you think there's also, like, other spirits, like, we talked about demons, but how about, like, just, like, nature spirits that have been around for, you know, in folklore, like fairies and stuff like that? You know, I haven't done very much much research in um, <clears throat> as far as that, other than just you know a few stories I've read here and there. Um, you know, I'm kind of a believer that anything is possible, um, but I can't really speak too much to that because I've not really researched that as much. Um, what do you think is the most common? Or, yeah, the most common cause of a haunting. Hmm. Um, gosh, it's hard to say uh, because I've experienced several different kinds. You know, a lot of the time, I, I think it's just someone that has a story that they want to get out, whether it be um, a message they want to send or just a story. I feel like a lot of the time it's, there's some type of unrest involved. Um, <clears throat> you know, I investigated, um, I investigated my grandparents' old farmhouse. Um, they've been passed away for, for many years. And, you know, there were several people uh, in my family that had passed away in that home. Uh, nothing negative, nothing, um, you know, I, I never felt anything there when I was a kid. I just had some spare time and thought, you know, I'm on a, do a couple experiments here and <clears throat> what was interesting about it and it, it really sort of made me think um so you know this house was built in 1907 and uh i had two generations of my my grand grandfather and his dad had lived there he was my grandfather was raised in the house and um I had, you know, these tools that I had set down while I was getting ready to investigate. I invited a friend over. She and I went over there and was invest were investigating. And I turned on my ovilus 
And so for me, a lot of the time, my ovulus just kind of spits mumbo jumbo out. Sometimes it may say something that makes sense. Other times it just seems like it's, it's kind of random. But what was really cool about this location, so that house, um, it's old farmhouse, um, nothing really more than positive experiences from all of my family throughout the years. Um, it was really just a home place. Um, I sat down, set it down on the table and I set down my dousing rods. That's something that I love using are those dousing rods because they're so simple. And also because a lot of spirits that we're dealing with, they're familiar to them. You know, they're not flashing lights. They're not asking them to touch something that they don't understand. They're, they're real simple. And as soon as I set those dousing rods down on my ovulus, I got the word water. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really cool because that's what this spirit or anyone who lived in this house would know those rods as because they're used for witching mm -hmm. water. And so um, every piece of evidence that I got on that ovulus, all the terms were utilitarian. Um, water, bake, cook, heat. Um, there was nothing, I mean, everything was specific to that house, which I thought was really cool. And so it made me start to think that, um, you know, and I really didn't get very much activity in there. Just like I said, just mostly those words on the ovulus, a little bit of um, activity on my uh, dousing rods, but nothing that would really even lead me to believe that the house was haunted. So I don't really feel like my grandparents or their parents were, were um, not at rest. So I think that there wasn't really much of a message, I guess, to send to me. Maybe that what I was experiencing was really more residual because it was a farmhouse. But that makes me think when I go to these different places that you know, a lot of these spirits are potentially not at rest or they have some kind of story or some kind of message that they want to get out, um, you know, or, or the other thought is something tragic happened that left them with, you know, having that uh, unrest or that feeling that they needed to, you know, get something out for, for let, let us know something that happened there. Have you ever felt like one, you know, or, or even released any spirits that you feel like we're just trapped here because of um, unresolved issues? Uh, I feel like I have actually, I feel like I've helped to get their story out um, as far as, you know, <clears throat> And, and it may be bad terminology or something, but as, as far as like, I've never crossed anyone over or anything. I don't, I don't really feel that that's my place. Um, but uh, I do feel, especially experiencing that at the Sunset Hill house, um, I do feel as though we sort of released that, um, you know, the, the demonologist, when he, you know, did what he did, um, I do feel like that released the oppression that the three uh, non-negative spirits were feeling. And uh, I think that, that um, you know, 
through that case study, I feel like <clears throat> I was able to um, get little tidbits of information that they wanted to get out, you know. Um, but as far as like actually crossing, you know, somebody over or um, I guess having them, I guess where they were at, you know, had a message and, and, and then that was it. Uh, and then they move on. I don't know. I can't really, I guess I can't really speak to that. Yeah. I just imagine sometimes like what, how awful it would be to die and just be stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's why I think it, that's a hard question for me to answer as far as what we're experiencing, you know, um, because that is hard for me to comprehend being stuck, you know, um, and then you have to say some of these very, very haunted locations, you know, if we crack the code, I guess, or get the, um, get the message out, you know, is that, that infamous spirit, you know, let, let's take the, the nurse at Waverly, um, that, uh, you know, was, was hung or, you know, made it look like a suicide. You know, if she gets that message out, um, is she going to move on, you know, cause she's one that a lot of people encounter there or a lot of people try to encounter, you know, whether she's stuck or, or whether she gets her message, is she going to move on? I don't know. That's, that's one of those questions that's really tough for me. Yeah. I, that's one of the things that always concerned me when I was going on paranormal investigations. If I had come across that, you know, how, I mean, if I found an entity or, or, or a soul that was trapped, I would almost feel like it would be like my responsibility to, to, to help it out of that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure what causes them to be in that situation. I guess, you know, do they choose um, do they not want to move on? Do they, <clears throat> you know, if, if they are, you know, like I said earlier, if, if heaven is closer than, you know, what we think, if it really is just sort of a, a very close realm, just, you know, very, um, with a very slim separation between us, you know, are they trapped or are they just there and they have the ability? There's something they want to say or communicate, you know, um, that's, that's why that one is, is really hard for me because I don't know why they're trapped. Um, you know, if it's just a matter of, you know, maybe what awaits them on the other side is, is, you know, if they're an, if they're a, a person in re in reality, that's not a good person. Um, there may be something that awaits them that's not very pleasant. And so they may be holding off for that. You know, it's, it, that's a tough one. And that's hard because when I encounter child spirits at different locations, I've had people, you know, when I share that evidence, I would find that some people would get upset, you know, when you would capture a child entity and they would want you to cross them over or move them, you know, on, uh, help them move on but you know and other times people would would you know like the fact that 
that uh, you were communicating with the child. But from what I found, most people would get upset when they would hear that because it is heartbreaking when you're communicating with with what what we would think might be a child and that they seem trapped. But the communication that I've had with uh, Nina at the Cragmiles Mausoleum and Mary Elizabeth at Octagon Hall, they were quite pleasant experiences. They weren't, which in that case leads me to think that, um, you know, it, it was either some type of just a part of their energy, not so much their soul, but a part of their energy that I was communicating with that's in that specific location or possibly, um, you know, just the veil is thin right there where we were communicating. Interesting. This next question, you don't have to answer it if you want to, because um, it's sort of like, you, you know, I get curious when I talk to people of faith that are into paranormal investigation. Mm-hmm. And um, if there is a God and a creator, um, why would he allow spirits to be able to contact us? Or us to contact them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And that that is something that's that's challenging for me to answer. um, Because like I said, I am a person of faith. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I believe, um, you know, I, for me, I believe, you know, when, when we die, we, we either go to heaven or hell. And now is there a waiting place, um, you know, in between or, or what that's kind of hard for, for me to answer, but I feel, I do feel like, um, you know, gosh, that, that is a, a tough question. I do feel like that, you know, again, for me, that what's kind of comforting is, it seems like from the experiences I've had, I, I believe, you know, again, heaven, heaven and hell are not that far away from us. And some of the stuff that we may be experiencing, um, again, if it's, if it's, uh, you know, a loved one that, that has passed on, uh, maybe they are, you know, communicating, um, you know, something more positive or, you know, showing that they're there. Uh, if it's someone that's uh, in one of these locations, you know, maybe they are, maybe they just, ha- like I said, maybe they're just not that far away um, and, and they're able to to speak through the veil or through that, that realm. Um, that, that, is, that is a very tough question, I, but I know for me, um, just from different things I have experienced, because I've never, other than that time I investigated at my grandparents' house, I've never, you know, reached out to a specific loved one of mine. And, um, you know, I, I feel like, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like that it's, um, you know, it, it's really affirmed and really um, made my faith in that afterlife stronger whatever it is, um, it's, it's, for me, it's stronger and, and just proves that we go somewhere when we die. And whether it be, 
the act of, you know, our souls communicating from another realm or just that energy that's left behind, um, you know, as far as DNA, energy, that sort of thing, some people are able to communicate. Um, that's, that's a tough one. <laughs> I know it was. <laughs> that's why I said you didn't have to answer it if you didn't want it to. I thought I would take a stab, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to get ready to wrap this up. Um, can you just get, tell my listeners where they can, uh, your website and where they can find you if they want you to come investigate their homes? Yeah, absolutely. So there's several ways that you can find me. Um, I'm the most active on Facebook, but you can watch my past two seasons and also watch my upcoming season three on the Ghost Biker Explorations Facebook page, my Ghost Biker Explorations YouTube channel, and then also on www.ghostbikerexplorations.com. The third season is going to drop the first weekend or the first Tuesday in October and will drop every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time throughout the month of October. And we'll also have different lives and everything coming up. Um, I've also got some different events that uh, people can see on the Facebook page and on my website that are leading up to October and through the month of October. And then, like I said, just go back and watch those past two seasons, um, gone to some really cool locations and you can see those on those three different platforms. Um, you can also follow along with uh, my photography on Instagram under Runaway Vixen. Awesome. And uh, after, after the show, if you want to send me an email with all those links, I can uh, put those in the notes with the episode. Oh, wonderful. And that'll make it easy for the listeners to, to check all that out. Wonderful. Yeah, because we've got a lot of stuff um, <clears throat> going on up until then. And then um, I do, uh, I had mentioned earlier that I was an artist and I draw a lot of the uh, haunted locations that I visit. And so, and that's actually how I fund my uh, travels and web series, the sale of, of my ghost biker t-shirts. And then those, those prints of different uh, haunted locations are on my website. And so um, people can, can check that out. And if they're interested, um, there's some places that are well known and some that are, you know, places that I personally, um, you know, are local legends that I've visited, so. You know, there is one question I forgot to ask, and maybe the most important one. Uh-huh. What kind of bike do you ride? <laughs> I ride a Harley Davidson 883 Iron Sportster. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, a, I, knew, I knew you had to be a Harley person. I am, you know, my first bike was a Kawasaki Vulcan, and uh, I loved that bike, and that was what I learned on. But uh, I've always loved the Sportster ever since I was a kid. And so, so yeah, I ended up finding that one. It was a throwback to a 69 model and uh, fell in love with it when I saw it and got it. And that's, that's what I hit the road on every time. That's probably what I would ride, too, if I had a motorcycle. Oh, yeah. The, to me, there's nothing beats it. And, and that's what's been great about this whole thing is being able to combine those two passions of my love for the paranormal and travel 
uh, on the motorcycle. It's been really cool to be able to combine those two together. That is cool. Well, definitely thank you for being on the show and thank taking the time to talk. And um, again, my listeners, will, everything will be in the notes uh, to check you out. And who knows, maybe you'll get a couple of haunted places to investigate out of doing this episode. Yeah, I hope so. If anyone has uh, a story that they want to share or a location that they would like for me to check out, they can, it, you know, it can be a residential or it can be like a local story that is um, known in their particular area. I love hearing those and love checking those out. So there is a form on my website that they can send in um, or that they can uh, respond to with their information or they can reach out to me on Facebook. I would love to hear those. Great. And thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for listening to everything imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle. And tell it be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everything imaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You know, yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.